Hey guys, this is the Mosaic Podcast, and I want to welcome you. But I want to let you know that MSC just released a new album called Heaven. Seven brand new songs that express the heart of our community, our heart of worship, and are going to absolutely inspire you and make an impact on your life. Mosaic MSC, Heaven. So we've started together a series around chasing daylight. We're talking about how to seize the power of every moment, and we've began last week by looking at a basic construct that, that life really is built on moments that shape all the minutes in our life. That inside of, of defining moments, inside of divine moments, what unlocks that moment are the choices we make. That choosing is the most spiritual act a human being ever engages in. And it all begins here. You have to choose to love. And whether you believe in God or not, whether you consider yourself a spiritual person or not, you actually are a sacred being. Because the power to choose is the power to create. And the power to create is a reflection of the image of God in you. But I think all of us struggle with, with even the chasm between who we sense we should be and who we know we are. And in our own spiritual journeys, I think sometimes it's just so frustrating going, God, I I can't seem to actualize the life you promised me I'll have. There are some of you, you've done everything you know how to do to make your life an altar. And you cannot figure out why things haven't come together. And I, I think a huge part of that is because so much of our language of faith is actually superstition. That we have a hard time distinguishing between the magic that we've been taught and the reality that we have to live. There's this passage of scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 14 where the whole journey and narrative of Chasing Daylight is unwrapped. Each week, each chapter, we're going to unwrap a principle that unlocks the power of the life inside of us. And it's built around this story between Saul and his son, Jonathan. And in 1 Samuel 14, it begins in verse 1. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go. Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migran. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing the ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross, to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozeth and the other Senek. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Gibeah. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go. Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Now the story continues and we'll unwrap the... Layers that follow in the weeks to come. But I want us to pause here and begin here. Because there's one phrase in particular that Jonathan uses twice. Or he uses it once and it's recorded twice. Come, let's go. And so oftentimes in our own spiritual journey, we don't seem to understand why things are not activated. We keep waiting for God to do things in our life. And sometimes we're so frustrated going, God, why aren't you acting? Have you ever felt like God is just not keeping up with your life? He's just not keeping up with the pace of your needs. Have you ever felt like God is just sort of meandering around, wandering around, just daydreaming? You're going, God, get over here now. My life is happening and you're just sort of hanging out being God. You're God, you're eternal. You have all the time in the world. I'm running out of time. One of the things we don't oftentimes understand is that when we perceive that we're waiting on God, it's actually God who's waiting on us. And one of the most powerful distinguishing characteristics of individuals who live a life of real faith and spiritual depth is that they take initiative. And if you're wondering, what should I do with my life? If you've ever been paralyzed going, I just don't know what God's will is for my life. I I don't know what I should do next. I want to give you what I think will be the most important advice of your life. Just do something. (laughs) See, I think sometimes we overcomplicate life. 
We, we, I don't know what to do. I could do this. I could do that. You know, I, I have so many options. I, 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 and, and what I find so oftentimes is that most of us are paralyzed not because we don't have enough options. It's because we have too many options. Most of us are paralyzed not because we don't have any opportunities. It's because we have too many opportunities. Have you ever had a meeting with someone and you thought you were at the right place, but they were somewhere else? See, I, 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 I've had meetings or I thought there was only one restaurant of its kind. So I said, meet me there. And they didn't show up. And I, I, I remember one particular time, I was waiting and waiting and waiting, and I was kind of upset. I can't believe they didn't respect this meeting. They didn't show up. I, I've taken my time to be here on time, and they're not here. So I didn't even text them. I was waiting to see, how long, how late will they be? You ever done that? I'm not even going to reach out. I just want to see what's going on, what kind of people they really are. And about a half an hour passed, and finally I just said, all right, where are you? They go, I'm at in this same place. They go, no, you're not. I'm there. Where are you? I said, I'm in the back. I'm in the back. And, and, and they didn't text me either, so I could tell they were mad on their end. I could tell they were there going, he didn't show up. He's disrespecting this meeting. It's not even important enough to him. I'm waiting on him. Who does he think he is? And then they send me, are, are you on this street? I said, no, I'm not on that street. The restaurant's on this street. There's two of them. And all of a sudden I realized, I thought I was waiting on them. And they thought they're waiting on me. See, I think a lot of us think that God, well... It's just moving so slow that we're spending our entire life waiting on him. But I want you to understand something. You are never waiting on God. God is always waiting on you. But there's some of you here, you know just enough Bible to be dangerous. And you're thinking, no, no, no. The Bible says, wait on the Lord. Right? Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. And so there's some of you, you're always waiting on the Lord. He just never seems to show up. See, I, I need to like, help you understand how this thing pray, plays out because you're not that fast. See, you're not so fast like you're having to wait on the Lord. God's like, oh, 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 I can't keep up with you. Just slow down, man. See, the Bible does say wait on the Lord, but we take it out of context. You wonder when the Bible says wait on the Lord? It's not because you're moving so fast God can't keep up with you. Slow down! It's, it's, that phrase is there when a person is facing a challenge so big, so ominous, so terrifying, that they're ready to run for their lives. See, when a person is about to surrender their future, that's when the Bible says, wait on the Lord. See, the Bible doesn't say, wait on the Lord because you're moving so fast into the future, because you're like so proactive, because you're just so awesome. God's like, can't keep up with you. The Bible says, wait on the Lord when you're about to lose your future because of your fear. So I love this moment because this is one of those moments that unwraps the essence of a person. And, and, and here's the thing. Two people can be in the same moment and have two different outcomes of momentum. You have Saul and Jonathan, a father and a son, a king and a prince. Saul is the first king of Israel. God did not want Israel to have a king, but they insisted on having a king. They didn't want to just have God. And God kept saying, I don't think you want a king. They go, no, we really do. And and other other nations have kings. We want a tyrant to tell us how to live our lives. We want someone to dictate our freedom and establish the limitations of our life experience. Okay, you want a king, I'll give you a king. So God gave them the best king he could give them, even though the best king is not as good as having God. So Saul becomes king. He messes up, as we knew he would. He started panicking because they were at war with the Philistines, and the Philistines outnumbered them 10,000 to 1. The Philistines had chariots and horses and weapons and warriors. And, and Israel, they, they had a few thousand soldiers. Saul had 2,000. Jonathan had 1,000. But the problem, of course, is the Philistines were really strategic. And they knew they were going to wipe out the Israelites. So they strategically plotted and killed all the blacksmiths in Israel. So that the Hebrews had no one to make them swords. That's brilliant. So the Hebrews would have to commission the Philistines to sharpen their plows. Even their farming utensils were dependent on the skills of the Philistines. 
So they had two swords. One sword was held by Saul the king, and the other sword was held by Jonathan the prince. Sometimes it is who you know. (laughs) And no other soldier of Israel had a weapon. Can you imagine being in the army and going, well, okay, where's my weapon? Oh, you don't get one. We don't have any. There's only two, and we get them. Let's go. So when they saw the Philistines coming, they were terrified. The thousands of soldiers ran for their lives and saw panic because the prophet Samuel had not come to offer an offering to God so that God's favor would be with them. And so Saul took it in his own hands and he violated the relationship he had with God and everything was falling apart. And now they only had 600 men left and there's no way Saul was going to win with 3,000 so he was not going to go to war with 600 and he just wasn't going to do it. You ever just felt like God was being unreasonable with you? And that he was giving you challenges so big with the resources so small. What's up, God? Let's get this thing right. So Saul decided, you know, I'm going to go to sleep. In verse 2, it says, Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migram. And, and with him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing the ephod. And he was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest and child, letting him know that God was still there. And then it says, in the middle of this, Jonathan got up and laughed while they were sleeping. Have you ever figured out what your personal stress behavior is? I think it's interesting how uh, people respond differently to stress. I used to do a lot of studies on stress behavior. And some people, when they're stressed out, they just eat. Anybody like that? You just... Let's get pizza. Let's get donuts. I, I, I know that that's, I, I, I'm, I, I'm really creative with stress behavior. I choose multiple outlets. And so I, I, I'll do the pizza and donuts for stress behavior. But other people, when they have, when they're stressed out, their stress behavior is like, it, you need to have physical release. Got to play basketball. Got to go boxing or lift weights or lift a car or something. I just got to have to do something physical. <laughs> Other people with their stress behavior, they just need to be alone. Just get out of my face. Get out of my life. I know we're married. Just leave right now. And uh, <laughs> No one like that here? <laughs> Some people with stress behavior, they talk. Anybody have a friend who's a talker? <laughs> oh, <laughs> You know they're stressed out because it's been such a hard week this week because I was going to work at my lunch and I didn't have any car. My gas, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. And then, you know, then I was just thinking the other day about how you know this person and, and they just keep talking, talking, talking. See, when there's no periods, you know that they're stressed. <laughs> You're like, breathe, breathe. I'm breathing, I'm breathing. What are you talking about? You're acting like there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not stressed out. You know, something's wrong with you. And, and when there's stress, they just talk. They're just talkers. And you just got to listen. Just got to let it go. Let it happen. But other people, when they're stressed, their stress behavior is sleep. They hibernate. There are a lot of people, their stress behavior is actually hibernation. I just, I'm just so tired. You ever just feel exhausted and you don't know why? Because it's stress behavior. So you just go to bed and you just want to sleep all day. And you know you're, you're stressed out because you go from the bed to the sofa. <laughs> you know? And they just play video games all day. Or watch ESPN all day. Or watch reruns of Friends all day. Because you're just stressed out so you don't have any energy. This was, this was Saul's stress behavior. He goes under a pomegranate tree, gets in the shade, and goes to sleep and hopes that life will go away. But here's the problem. See, when you lack initiative, you just sleep through your dreams. And never live them out. So you have to be careful because... The challenges that you don't want to face, the conflicts that you don't want to step into, the, the crises you want to avoid. Have, have you ever made strategic decisions to avoid a conflict, to avoid a crisis, to avoid a problem? You know what I've discovered in my life? You never avoid them. You're just delaying them. Every conversation I don't want to have always comes back. Every conflict I don't want to have is always back. Every challenge I avoid comes back. Here's the problem. Every time I push them off, every time I put them off, every time I find a way around them, they always come back and they're bigger than they were and I'm smaller than I was. 
And this was one of those moments. There's no way Saul was going to avoid this. But in that moment, it wasn't actually Saul who initiated what God wanted to see happen. See, if you only follow Saul's story, it would look as if God was never going to do anything. But if you follow Jonathan's story, you realize God had everything ready in that moment if they would just step into it. It was all about initiative. It was about a person who decided, I don't know how it's all going to work out. I don't have all the details. I don't have all the facts and information, but I can't just stay here. I need to do something. I think sometimes the, the dilemma is our understanding of God and how he works in the world. And I'll go back to this. I'm going to keep pressing this because I think this is a part of the superstition that needs to be extricated from our faith. And, and it's so important because you'll never live the life God created you to live if you keep misunderstanding how God works in real life. So when I came to faith, I had so many good people in my life, and they were so kind to me and so gracious and so generous, and, and my mom raised me to say thank you. So whenever someone did something kind, I would say thank you, and they'd say, don't thank me, thank the Lord. And I'd say, no, I'll thank you both. You know, I have, there's enough thanks to go around. And, 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 and it's almost as if they thought God was offended if I thank them. That somehow they were stealing from God his glory, his fame, his, his, the honor due him. And they said, no, don't thank me. Thank the Lord. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm thank you and I'm going to thank the Lord. See, it's beautiful. And then, and then they'd press in because they felt like I didn't get it. Then they'd say, no, it wasn't me. It was the Lord. See, and I was new to this whole thing. I had not yet bought into the mirage and illusion of what we called Spirituality. I go, I, I, it looked like you. It seemed like it was you. When it happened, it was you. But it wasn't me. It was the Lord. I think it was you. I, I really do. I think you were inspired by God and, and maybe informed by God and shaped by God. And all these things. But I still think it was you. And I don't think it's confusing to God if you say it's you. I don't think God's going, who, who do you think you are saying you did that? I think God, Jay, it was you. Why do you keep saying I did it? Let me tell you, it's to this extreme. Now, 40 years later on this journey, last week someone gave me a book on one of my trips. They were so excited, they were so bright and intelligent and gifted and incredible human being. Deep, deep passion and deep faith. And they gave me the book and said, I just, I just feel like God told me to give you my book. And said, oh, okay, thank you so much. And, and I didn't realize that she had written a note inside of the book. So as I was unpacking this week to repack to one another trip, I found a note. And in the note, it said, I just knew, I just felt God tell me to give you the book. And I just wanted to, I'm so excited about the book. And, but I want you to know, I didn't write this book. And then she underlined, God wrote this book. And I thought, why doesn't God write my books? (laughs) He never even offers to write my books. He doesn't make that an option. I'm like, like, you know how hard I have to work writing books? Because, see, if you pick up Chasing Daylight, I just, disclaimer, I wrote it, okay? <laughs> but what's odd to me is on her book, her name is on the cover. So if God wrote the book, that's audacious. Don't put your name on the cover of a book you did not write. So which one is it really? Which one do you really believe, that God wrote the book or that you wrote the book? See, what we're told is that, no, we can't say we did it, but here's the problem. What about if the book's bad? I mean, I haven't read it yet, so I'm not saying. But what about if it's really bad, like grammatically? It's just, it's, it's not even literature. Like the prose is horrible, there's no poetry, it's all cliche, there's no insights. But God wrote it, so it's, he's a terrible writer. And you go, yeah, but he wrote Leviticus, so it could be true. And, and so you're like... I'm sorry. And, 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 and so if we do something and it's not good, we're supposed to take responsibility, right? I did that. But, but our mindset, we're told, no, 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 no. See, anything good, anything you do, God did it. But I just want you to understand something. That's not real. That's just talk. That's just cliche. That's just spiritual jargon. And if you buy into that, you will never live the life you're created to live. You need to understand you're designed to take initiative. You're designed to do something. 
And here's a part of the problem. See, this is where the paralysis happens. So if I do something, it's bad. So I can't do anything because everything good, God does, right? So I didn't write the book, God wrote it. We're just going to hope it's great. But I want you to know, God wrote a book, but it's not called Chasing Daily. God didn't write The Last Arrow. He didn't write any of the books I wrote. I wrote the books. Hopefully God is writing inside of me. God is shaping me. He's informing me. But if my books were written by God, they'd be so much better. And God didn't write that song you wrote. You wrote that song. See, we write music. They come out of the souls of people who love God. But God didn't write the songs. So we have this mindset. Everything we do wrong, that's us. Everything we do right, that's God. So it creates a subtle, subtle tension. If I do it, it's going to be bad. So what it does is it leaves you one option for life. You have to live in neutral. You can't take initiative. You cannot be proactive. You can't act because if you act, you'll destroy. Because only God creates. So you have to live your life in passivity because you're in danger of damaging the world. I want you to understand something. You are created to do good. And it's not God doing it. It's God creating you. And he created you to do good. So just do something. And and by the way, so we can just kind of clear up the philosophical foundation for this. See, this idea that we're supposed to live in neutral, that's not the teachings of Jesus. That's the teachings of Buddha. Now, if you're Buddhist, I respect that. But don't confuse Buddha with Jesus. Buddhism is not the same as Christianity. See, in Buddhism, the ultimate intention, the highest expression of spirituality is nothingness. It's the elimination of all desire. It's being completely detached from all thought and emotion. So when you move toward nothingness, you have finally found your spirituality. That's not Jesus. See, in Buddhism, I need to to move away from all my passions and desires, not just the destructive ones, even the ones we consider to be beautiful. In my conversations with Buddhist monks and teachers, I've said, even love, they said, yes, you must detach yourself from all emotions. You must detach yourself from all things. So there is no desire. You've moved to nothingness. Now you've found the true essence of spirit. See, Jesus is the opposite. No, I don't want you to move to nothing. I want you to move to everything. See, I want to put life and life in abundance inside of you. I want so much life inside of you, it's flowing out of you. I want it to be like a river of life. I don't want there to be nothing. I want you to have a deep well. In fact, on top of all that, I created you with passions and desires. See, that's why I can't be Buddhist, because I'm Latin. (laughs) Because I... I'm designed with passion. I, I can't even imagine living a life without passion. And in fact, what I discovered is it's really hard to overtake bad, destructive passions with nothing. Do you remember your first love? That first love when you were like 10, 11? You know, when you gave him all of your heart? And then a week later, he broke your heart? And you gave him the best years of your life. <laughs> I'll never get over him. Dad, I say, remember, when you're 14, my life is over. He doesn't love me anymore. He never did. He loved pizza more than he loved you, but you don't get that. And everyone tries to give you a way out. You know, it's just, it's just puppy love, but it feels true to the puppy. Right? You know, time heals all wounds. I don't want to be as old as you when I fall in love again. It's like, it's like, you know the only way you get over an old love? 
is a new love. Yeah. The only thing that, that replaces a fire that has destroyed you is a fire that actually ignites you. See, God doesn't try to take away your passions. He tries to give you a, a passion so powerful and so profound that it consumes all the other fires inside of you. And that's, that's one of the things I love about Jesus is he's not trying to eliminate your desire. not trying to eliminate your passion. He's saying, look, I created you this way. I created you to be passionate. I created you to have desires. I created you to have dreams. I created you to burn from the inside out. I just need you to have the fire that creates light. Not just devastation. And there's some of you here, you keep waiting for God to do something in your life. And God keeps waiting for you to do something with your life. And he said, just do something. I remember when I was young in my faith, I, I quickly went to get my master's degree in theology, and that's where I met Kim, my wife. And I had a friend that I really respected. He grew up in this whole faith. And, and, and by the time he was in his early 20s, he was speaking like to tens of thousands of people, and he was so talented and gifted and intelligent. And, but when I met him, he was paralyzed. He just didn't know what to do with his life, and he, he just couldn't do anything. And, and we would have these long conversations, and he would say, how, how do you know what to do? And I said, I don't know what to do. I just know I need to do something. He goes, yeah, but you can't just do whatever you want to do. And he go, what? I just, yeah, I just, I just do. And Because, you see, you want to know and then do. I just do, and then I know. And we're driving across Texas, and he goes, I just don't know what to do with my life. And I said, just, just do something. That's when I came up with this profound insight. Just do something. And he got so angry. So I have, he used a big word. I have too much respect for the sovereignty of God to just do something. I said, I, I think you have too little respect for the sovereignty of God to act like the something you could do could affect his sovereignty. <laughs> and he said, no, I can't just do something. I have to do something that God wants me to do. I said, okay, you're worried about God's sovereignty, his power, his rule, his dominion. Do you think like Mussolini dented God's sovereignty? Of course not. How about Stalin? Nope. Genghis Khan, is there anyone who's ever just chosen evil? Let's just take the most evil people. Do you think they dent the sovereignty of God? Said, of course not. God's sovereign. All right, then. How are you going to mess up God's sovereignty? And it was perfect timing. We're driving on the highway, and this bug, smash, hits the windshield and just splats all over the shield. And I said, you're the bug. <laughs> Not the windshield. God's the windshield. See, if God is actually all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present, all-loving, then how in the world are you going to mess up his sovereignty by trying to do some good in the world? So here's my thought. If you're paralyzed, if you don't know what to do, if you've been sleeping under the pomegranate tree, if you've been using your lack of, of certainty of what God wants you to do with your life, or you're just paralyzed by all the options, stop using your fear as an excuse to not have faith. See, the reality is that we all have our stress behavior, and all that stress behavior is actually fear behavior. And so oftentimes, we choose to live in paralysis. We choose that, that place of passivity. We say, well, I just don't know what God wants me to do, so I'm not going to do anything. And sometimes we're overwhelmed because there's so many problems in the world. The problems are huge, right? I mean, how can you, by yourself, solve the global issues, how can you solve the problems of poverty, the problems of injustice? How in the world can you make a difference in, 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 in the, the, the culture and the society in which we live? But here's the problem. Just because you can't change everything, you cannot let that be an excuse that you never change anything. So three words. Jonathan says, come, let's go. I love this. It's almost as if it's a, an echoing of the words Jesus would let her say, follow me. He doesn't even fill in the blanks. Just follow me. Let's go. So Jonathan's going to go pick a fight. 
He's going to step into a battle that was his father's, but his father didn't have the courage or the resolve to step into it. And so it says that Jonathan, one day, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer who was carrying the sword, he gets to carry the sword as long as there's no danger. As long as there's danger, he has to get the sword up. Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. Let's go and initiate the future. But he did not tell his father. That's such a telling little statement, isn't it? You, you, you ever do something that you just decide I'm going to ask for forgiveness and not permission? <laughs> you see, I, I have two, two kids. And there are times they did not tell their father. <laughs> and I know when they did not tell their father, they knew they should have told their father. But I... Uh, Don't ever want them to be held back from the future God has for them because they have more courage than me and I don't have the courage for them. There's one little statement that says, no one was aware that Jonathan had left. And then it gives us a description of the cliffs. It says, he has to go through a pass. All of us have a pass that we have to travel through. All of us have this valley of darkness we have to walk through. We all have our, our valleys of the shadows of death. It says, on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozeth, the other Sinek. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other south toward Gibeah. In other words, Jonathan understood that his initiative was moving him to a point of no return. He was putting himself in the most dangerous spot imaginable. See, I think a lot of times we pretend we're doing nothing because we don't know what God wants us to do. But the truth is that we're using our indecision as a mask for our fear. You just have to step up. Last night, I I was unwrapping some of this and I saw my friend Sasha and I said Sasha is one of those people who just lives by the mantra just do something he, he sees a problem in the world he sees human suffering he sees a, a global crisis and he just moves and he tries to do something and I guess at the end of his life maybe he'll find out he shouldn't have been everywhere but he just is somehow and I didn't even know when I pulled him out as an example that he already bought a plane ticket to go to Indonesia tomorrow where the earthquake and the tsunami has devastated the lives of so many people. He doesn't even have permission to get into the country. After I finished speaking, he came up to me and said, I need you to help me find someone to get me into the country. But I'm leaving in the morning anyway. Can you help me get permission by the time I land on Tuesday? We don't even know how it's going to play out. We don't know if he's even going to get in the country. Maybe he'll get there and never get in and people go, that was so foolish. That was so ridiculous. What are you doing? Getting on a plane, trying to fly into the middle of a global crisis where no one's allowed to go in. People who don't even want a person who believes in Jesus there. What are you going to go there? What's the point of going down there and and trying to document this and bring attention to it so people can actually care and be mobilized to help people who are suffering? You, You need to be more reasonable. You need to prepare and plan better. See, and and maybe he won't get in, but let me tell you. He's the kind of person that just keeps stepping into moments and they turn into momentum. Defining moments are not so much defined by the moment. They're defined by the person who makes the choices in that moment. I remember years ago, I I had a, a staff challenge. And I, I don't know if you know this, but you know, even though we're a church, we, we have staff. And, and it's a challenge. And, uh, because a lot of times people come to work for a church and think it's easier. But it's harder. And in fact, I always think it's interesting when we hire someone, when they, and the first week they go, what, what, what are my days off? And I'm like, what? That's the first thing you can think about? Your days off? Like, when you die, you get so many days off. <laughs> this, is, this is not IBM. This isn't Apple. This isn't Nike. We're here in the middle of a revolution. You don't get days off from a revolution. This is a job just for revolutionaries. 
So one day I had a staff person, and I couldn't really motivate them. I tried so many different things, and, and I just couldn't get them to live at that level of insanity that I needed them to live at. And uh, so I called my brother, Alex, and I tried to get some feedback from someone who was in another state, and I said, hey, I have this guy, and you know, he's, he's super, great husband, great dad, and I just can't get him to risk and to like cross that line and just be insane. And uh, my brother said, oh, you hired a, a normal person. <laughs> I think he might have even said healthy. He said, you, you, you made the mistake of hiring a healthy person. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, Erwin, you're not healthy. You're not normal. You wake up every morning thinking that you're supposed to somehow change the course of human history. You wake up every day thinking that you're supposed to leave a mark that will be remembered for a thousand years. You wake up every morning thinking that somehow your one little life can somehow make a mark across the billions of people who are here. He goes, I need, he goes, I need to understand that's not normal. You hired a normal person. You're trying to make him abnormal. You're trying to take a sane person and make them insane. And I know there's so much talk about balance. You know? But I said, no, that, that's Mr. Miyagi in The Karate Kid. That's that Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus wasn't balanced. Jesus was skewed. See, and, and the reality is, <laughs> if just making it through the day, if just getting the job done, if just existing... If accepting the status quo and accepting the world as it is and, and, and being real about what you can do and accepting that you can't really make a difference, if that's normal, then I choose insanity. And yes, I have an intention. I want to ruin you. I don't want to help you find your healthy balance. I want you to wake up in the morning with this insane sense that you were created to do something that matters in the world. I don't want you to be reasonable. Reasonable people keep sitting still doing nothing. Because it's the most reasonable thing you can do. Right? After all, just be zen. Just disconnect just find your center just detach yourself Jesus of Nazareth did not die on a cross because he detached himself from his passion in fact the last hours and days around the life of Jesus are literally called the passion how odd that a moment in time would be called the passion. Because I, I don't know if you understand the essence of God. God is not disconnected. He's not indifferent. God is passionate. And the reason the death of Jesus is called the passion is because if you want to know what God is passionate about, look at the cross. Because God was so passionate in love with you he was willing to give his life so that you could live. God is so passionately broken and angry about the destructive force of the choices we've made and what we've lost. That he was willing to die to restore our humanity. I want to be like Jesus. I want to have that kind of passion that burns inside of me that says, my life is worth this. Come. Let's go. See, I, I'm not trying to pull together a community of people where we can just sort of live in a spiritual jacuzzi. <laughs> I don't want us sipping lemonade just looking at sunsets. I want us to believe that we are the most powerful force that humanity has ever known. I want us to believe that love is the most powerful force in the universe. Want people crazy enough to say, I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to make a difference in the world. Yeah. So come. Let's go. Let's pick a fight. 
Let's make the world a better place. Let's fight for people. Let's love them. Let's choose how we live the moments. I had a surreal experience yesterday. I was flying back from Northern California and I had a copy of Chasing Daylight and I thought, you know, I should probably read chapter one. <laughs> and uh, I, I haven't read the book and uh, I've heard good things about it. And, uh, but God didn't write it. And uh, so I started reading the opening story and I didn't remember it. It was so strange to be reading a story I wrote that I lived. I didn't know how it was going to end. I was like, what happened? And, and I started reading and I started feeling awkward. Ooh, wow, that's really transparent. Wow, why did I say that? And I started feeling really naked, re- realizing people are going to be reading this. And then I remembered it all. It just came flooding into my soul. We were on the coast of Florida. Gulf of Mexico. I was speaking at a huge conference. And uh, family came and had a little break in between sessions. So me and Aaron went down to the beach and he was sitting to my left. I was sitting on the sand. And, and then I, I saw something through my peripheral vision to the right. It was this guy, really, really, I mean, jacked, huge. But that wasn't really the defining characteristic. Um, he had no legs, he was a double amputee. And he had his crutches, and he was working his way down the beach to touch the water. And he handled that, navigated that so well. And you could tell he was a fighter. He just did not allow his physical challenges to limit his life. You could feel his nobility and his strength, his intention. But when he turned around to work his way back up, the the sand was more moist and more unstable. And so when he put his crutches into the the sand and he went to move forward he just fell face forward and he just hit face forward so hard and I saw it happen and I made a choice you see a lot of us don't don't acknowledge that we make choices we just act as if life is happening but I made a choice I made a choice to not get up and help him and I could I had a thousand different thoughts rationalizing it and and then he got himself up and he put the crutches back under his arms and he stabilized himself and he took another step and he just fell hard again, face forward. And I made a choice. He was to my right and I made a choice. I made a choice to look to my left. I made a choice to look in the other direction to pretend he wasn't in my moment. And, uh, and Aaron was right there and, and, and I remember making a choice to put my hand on his shoulder and I thought I need to get his attention so he doesn't see this because this is just too painful and, 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 and he was maybe, I don't know, 10 years old and I, and I started having a conversation with him about meaningless things about everything I should not have been talking about in that moment I made a choice and Aaron interrupted whatever I was saying and he looked at me and he said Dad, I have to go help that man And uh, when he said that, it just cut through me like a knife. He didn't have to say, what man? He he didn't have to say, hey, Dad, there's a man over there. I don't know if you've seen him. All he said was, Dad, I have to go help that man. He knew. He knew I knew. And when he said that, all my hypocrisy just came spilling out of my soul. And I could barely get the words. I just looked at him and I said, "Then, then, buddy, go help him. And he just jumped up and ran. By by the speed of his action, I knew that I had trapped him in my moment. I, I, I had sucked him into my abyss of apathy and passivity and mediocrity, and I was pulling my son down to my level. And he wanted to be free. The only way to be free was to choose differently than me. He was like Jonathan looking at his father and saying, I'm, I'm not going to stay in your moment. I'm going to act. I'm just going to do something. See, I, I had the physical capacity to help that man. Aaron did not. And he ran over there and he grabbed a crutch with one hand and then without even like introducing himself, he just immediately went and grabbed the, the arm of the man and started trying to pull him up. 
And it was an awkward moment because the guy now was trying to get up with this little boy trying to help him up. And there were probably hundreds of people right around it, all of them having made the same choice I made to pretend this wasn't happening. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I watched because I, I, was, I was still sitting in the smallness of my moment watching life happen around me. And, and this whole group converged in that moment on that guy and Aaron and, and they picked up the crutches and then they picked up the man and then they carried him from the beach to the hotel and Aaron ran underneath the, the crowd as they carried him in. And then when he ran back to me, he looked so discouraged and so dejected. And he said, Daddy, I, I couldn't help the man. I wasn't strong enough. And I remember it was so clear. No, buddy, you got it all wrong. You were the only one who had the strength to choose. You were the only one who had the strength to act. All of that only happened because you made that moment come to life. How many times in my life has God waited for me to turn to the right, but I turned to the left? How many times did God wait for me to make the choice to just unlock the divine, the miraculous, the beautiful, the human? And I just settled for less. And, and, and no one could have ever, ever said anything about me. No one could say, well, he did this terrible thing or he made these horrible choices. You know, the most tragic thing about the moments of our lives is that most of them, we will not be defined by anything because we just did nothing. So you weren't a bad person. You weren't destructive. You were nice. You just didn't care enough. Act. I've had enough of those moments in my life. I don't want any more. I want to look in the direction of the good I can do. So you want to know what God wants you to do? He wants you to do something. Oh, yeah, but how do I know? Just do. And then you'll know. I was watching this old movie, Far and Away, with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. And, and it was Irish immigration and the Oklahoma land rush. And in and, and the morning... Men had to get on horses and ride out to the land, and whatever land you got to first, you get to claim it as your land. I love that. Very pioneering. And Tom Cruise didn't know how to ride a horse, so he had to go buy one, and there were two options, and just one wild standing, just kicking and snorting, and just looked insane. And the guy selling horses said, that there, that's a wild standing. That's fast. That horse is fast, but he's wild. He's untamed. And Tom Cruise looking at it thinking, I do not want to get on that horse. He said, do you have any other horses? And he goes, now over here, we got this. This is a calm horse. This is a tame horse. This is a steady horse. And Tom Cruise says, I'll take the horse. And then next morning when he's getting ready to go claim his land, he goes to get his horse and his horse is laying on the ground dead. And this old man walks by, I think it's a cameo, and he says, that there was the oldest horse I ever did see. And I thought, oh, that's the problem with most of us. We keep choosing the dead horse. Because we're afraid of the wild stallion. But I want you to know it's easier for God to use a wild stallion than it is for him to use a dead horse. You worried about doing the wrong thing? Man, just get alive. Care about something. Let passion burn in your soul. Some of you, you have all the wood that the altar needs. What you need is the fire. Let's be that people. Let's just take Initiative. Let's stop pretending we're waiting on God and realize that God's waiting on us. There's some of you here, you're saying, God, do something in my life. God, I need your help. God, why won't you show up? And I want you to realize there's some of you here, you're acting as if you're waiting on God, but God's waiting on you. And you need to cross the line of faith and say, Jesus, I give you my life. See, Jesus already gave his life for you. He's just waiting for you to give your life to him. So let's just stop pretending that we're moving faster than God. God is waiting for you in this moment, and he's been waiting for you all of your life. So I want you to do right now, I just want you to bow your heads with me just for a moment. Just close your eyes. Because for some of you, your first act, your first act of initiative is to cross the line of faith and give your life to Jesus. It's just time to stop waiting and hesitating and being paralyzed by fear. It's time to step up and say, Jesus, I don't want to just exist. I don't want to be normal. I choose insanity. Do in me what 
no one else can do. And I want to lead you in a prayer where you give your life to Jesus. Yes, this moment will change everything. Here's the prayer, simple, just one sentence. Jesus, I give you my life. That's it right now. Just tell him, Jesus, I give you my life. Take initiative in this moment. Jesus, I give you my life. Step into it right now. Jesus, I give you my life. Do you hear him calling you? Come, let's go. Come, let's go. Follow me. Just say, yes, Jesus, right now. Jesus, I give you my life. I'm telling you, things will never be the same. He's going to tear you out of normal and put you in unbelievable. He's going to take you out of the possible into the impossible. Your friends are going to tell you you've lost your mind. You can just say, you're right, I choose insanity. I refuse to exist. I'm going to live. Right now, if you pray that prayer, Jesus, I give you my life. If this is the prayer of your heart, Jesus, I give you my life. I want you with all the courage and strength and proactivity and initiative you have just to hold your hand up high, and I want to pray for you. If this is you, Jesus, I give you my life. Beautiful. Anyone else right now? Wonderful. Just hold it high. Jesus, I give you my life. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be hesitant. Don't be afraid. Break out of the paralysis. Break out of the passivity right now. Jesus, I give you my life. Choose life, not existence. Right now, Jesus, I give you my life. Anyone else? Anyone else? Beautiful. Father, I thank you for all the women and men who in this moment have stepped across that line of faith from death to life, from existence to adventure. Jesus, I'm so grateful that you call us to the impossible, that you place a drop of insanity inside of our souls and you cause us to believe in that which we could never believe without you. God, we want lives that are unexplainable. So we hear you. Just call us out. Come, let's go. And we're saying, yes, we are in Jesus. We want the adventure. We want the journey. We want the great quest. We want you to call out the heroic from within us. We want that life that is bigger than our skin, God. We want what you only can give Jesus. We choose insanity. And we will step into the good and we'll just do something until you make the something more clear that we should do. We thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we just thank God so much for what he's doing in our lives? I don't want anyone to ever talk about church like it's boring. Or our faith as if it's mundane. I want you to commit to never, ever, ever be normal again. I want you to just absorb all the insanity that God will pour into your soul. I want you to choose insanity and live a life that only God could ever unlock in you. Let's do it together. Let's start chasing daylight. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message you've just received. Allow it to go deeply into your soul. To allow Jesus to do the deep work that only he can do. And I also want to encourage you to be a part of what we're doing here at Mosaic to go to the Mosaic app and to become a part of the Mosaic Foundation, to become a regular giver and investor in bringing this message across the world. I want to thank you so much for being here with us. God bless you.